All right, now everybody has found your place in 1 Samuel 16, so let's go ahead and stand as we read these 13 verses. Should be somewhat familiar to many of you, but it's concerning another encounter on the backside of the desert with someone who was tending sheep. But perhaps in these verses, it's not David that's the main character of the story. Obviously, the Lord is the main character of all of Scripture, but it's Samuel who we see God really dealing with in these verses. The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected a king from his sons. Samuel asked, How can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, do you come in peace? In peace, he replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice, and he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, certainly the Lord's anointed is the one here before me. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. Man does not see what the Lord sees, for man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Jesus, uh, sorry, Jesse called Abinadab and presented him to Samuel. And the Lord hasn't chosen this one either, Samuel said. Then Jesse presented Shammah, and Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen this one either. After Jesse presented seven of his sons to him, Samuel told Jesse, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. Samuel asked him, are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest. He answered, but right now he's tending sheep. Samuel told Jesse, send for him. We won't sit down and eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes, healthy, handsome appearance. Some translations say he was ruddy. (laughs) Then the Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil, anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord took control of David, came upon him. From that day forward, then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. Father, Lord, as we've looked at these encounters of Moses and now of David, I pray that we would constantly seek to have our own encounter with you, understanding that you are doing a wonderful work and you're inviting us to join you in that work. Speak to us this morning through your word, by your spirit, And Lord, I pray that there would be a man or a woman, maybe a young person in here today, who would leave more sensitive to your voice, perhaps more confident of a direction than they ever have been, and that they would go into this world, that we would all go into this world as ambassadors for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. 
Many of you have heard the uh, joke that I like to share that compares denominations a little bit, makes fun of denominations. I'm an equal opportunity offender, and so I'll include Baptists in this as well. But for those who haven't heard it, maybe uh, it will illustrate a point a little bit for you. You've heard how many Presbyterians it takes to change a light bulb, right? My wife grew up Presbyterian, so I'm picking on her past just a little bit here. How many Presbyterians it takes to change a light bulb? It, it, well, none, because if God wanted the light bulb changed, God would change the light bulb. Some of you have to dig a little bit deeper theologically to get that one, I understand. But uh, how many Catholics does it cha- take to change a light bulb? Thought I'd have some answers there. None. They use candles, not light bulbs. How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? And some of you know the answer to this one, right? 100. One to actually change the bulb, 99 to shout out the spirit of darkness. All right. Either you're not getting or it's dying before it gets to your ears. <laughs> How many Methodists does it take to change a light bulb? Well, as of right now, the Methodists refuse to speak for or against whether or not the light bulb should be changed. How many Amish does it take to change a light bulb? What's a light bulb? And finally, how many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change? (laughs) Baptists have a hard time with change. A lot of believers have a hard time with change, a change of direction, letting go of the past, embracing the future, what God has in store for us. Maybe you're one of those this morning that you're like, Pastor, you can talk about anything you want to talk about. Just don't ask me to change. And we're going to talk a little bit about this this morning. Even Samuel, prophet of God, was struggling with change. Last week we see Moses. He's in the desert keeping sheep. He encounters the burning bush. Today, David similarly is on the backside of the desert doing what he was supposed to be doing at the time. And by the way, so many times God speaks to us and comes to us right when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, though it may seem trivial. But he has to deal with Samuel in this passage, and I want us to see that he not only chooses David, but he deals with Samuel in this process. Remember how all this came about? Israel had wanted a king, and God had desired to be their king, but they wanted one with flesh and blood that they could see, and God would warn of the consequences. But Though he warned of the consequences, he would still allow it, and he would still work in that kind of a government set up, even though they would suffer the consequences that he warned them about. It demonstrates that God can work through less than ideal circumstances. Saul would have a good start as king, it would seem, but then everything would go downhill. Even though he would reign, sometimes we forget this, Uh, He would reign for 42 years as king in Israel, but much of that time he was kind of a a lame duck leader because of his impatience and his insecurity, which led to disobedience. And when he had actually sacrificed, waiting on Samuel to show up, who showed up momentarily right after that, he got ahead of God. God told Samuel to prepare the next king that he had rejected, Saul. You know, there are seasons in the life of a leader, a disciple, like what Samuel was going through here. 
There's also seasons in the life of a family and seasons in the life of a church where God says it's time to let go of the past. It's a brand new day. And with David being anointed king, this was a, a, a picture of the fact that in Israel it was going to be a brand new day. Some of you are at a place in your life, a season of life, where you need to let go of some things from the past and embrace what God has for you from this day forward. And I pray that today that the Spirit of God would show you in the Word of God how it can be a brand new day in your life, a time to let go and a time to embrace what He has in store in the future. Our walk must be close with Him. Our spirit must be sensitive to His Word and to His work for us to embrace those brand new days in Christ. God, according to the Word of God again and again and again, God is a God of new days. God is a God of new things. Lamentations 3.23, many of you are familiar with, that tells us that God's mercies are new every day. Every morning we experience a new mercy, a new grace, a new encounter with God, and we don't want to lose the freshness of that. Second Corinthians 4.16 says, our inner man is being renewed day by day. In fact, Paul says, look, the outer man, this flesh and blood, is, is just deteriorating. Can I get an amen? And sometimes, as, as I'm, I'm knocking like right on 50 now, and um, I can tell the outer man is deteriorating. But here's the wonderful thing is that the inner man is being renewed day by day by day, by day, and it can be a brand new day for you regardless of your age today. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, for new believers, we're told that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. All things are passing away. All things are becoming new. We're in the process of seeing a new day every day in Christ. And so let's make some observations from the text that I believe get me excited about a brand new day, and I pray this morning that we'll cause some of you to embrace that brand new day, that day that you finally say, I'm letting go and I'm moving on for the glory of God. First of all, I want you to see what Samuel had to discover, and that is God is closing the door on the past. God is closing the door on the past. Not that we don't learn from the past, not that we don't build on some of the strengths from the past. The problem is some of us get caught up in living in the past. And so in those first couple of verses in this chapter, we see that the Lord had said to Samuel, how long are you going to mourn? How long are you going to mourn? Not easy to accept the fact that this one that you anointed to be the first king of Israel, that God is now finished with him and God is ready to move on, but Samuel is mourning this great loss, like, like something has died within himself. That was the the nature of his relationship and this experience there, even though he himself had told Saul, God's moving on. It was hard for him to accept this, and he was grieving this. He goes on to say, God goes on to tell Samuel that I have rejected him. This word rejected in the Hebrew has to do with casting off something, something that had seemed to be placed on, and it's as if God was saying, listen, don't try to hold on to this. Don't, don't try to force Saul on Israel now. As you know, Samuel, I have cast him off. I have rejected him. 
Don't force this relationship. It's a kind of the picture. Uh, have any of you ever had an undesired matchmaker in your life that was always trying to fix you up with somebody maybe when you were younger? And I'm not talking about the married people, except for when you were younger and unmarried. But did any of you have, or if you're a teenager maybe today, do you have a friend, a mom, or a dad who tries to be a matchmaker, always fixing you up with somebody. If you know what I'm talking about, raise your hand, at least if you experienced that before. All right, so several of you, you know what those, some of the, the, the ones who didn't raise their hands, you're probably that matchmaker, right? You're always trying to fix people up. And, and it's the idea of how you would feel when somebody says, oh, I've got someone for you, they're just perfect for you, y'all would just be perfect together. Oh, if I could just put the two of you, oh, this is just going to be wonderful, and, and you're kind of like, Mom, she's not the one. Dad, she's not the one, or he's not the one. Whatever the case may be, whatever the situation may be, or you tell that buddy at school, for those of you who have friends at school, it's like, let me fix you up with so-and-so, and you're like, no. You may think we look good. It may look like a good match to you, but no way. You've, you're rejecting that person. And God is saying, don't try to, don't try to force this thing with Saul. It's not going to happen. I've rejected him. I've cast him off. The struggles that Samuel faced here as a result of that, partly because of maybe of a disagreement, not understanding, but mostly because it would seem, according to verse 2 here, because of danger to himself, potentially his own death and maybe even the death of those who would get behind him in this process because we see not only in verse 2 was Samuel afraid, but when he came into Bethlehem, you have the citizens there that are afraid. You coming in peace? Are you about to make things really bad for us? Do you realize, as, as Samuel would have said to Saul and the people would say to Samuel, Samuel would say, say to God, excuse me, if, if, If I go and anoint somebody else, then Saul will kill me. I could lose my life over this. He knew that God had rejected Saul, but now he's saying, but Saul could still kill me when I kind of go public with this. And the citizens there, in the next few verses, we see they are fearful of what Samuel might do because Saul could come, and we know that he was willing to do that. We know that Saul was willing to Uh, try to wipe out entire populations as well as even members of his own family. And so there was this fear of if I close the door on the past, what could happen to me? 21st century, here we are, and many of us struggle with the same thing. If I close the door on the past, what could happen to me. What if I take a risk moving forward? Listen, it's only risky if you go without God. But if you try to stay safe when God is moving forward, if you try to do what is easy and comfortable and not take any risk, when God is saying, I'm moving forward, then you stay back in an unsafe place because you remain there without the power of God and the protection of God on your life. If God says go, there's a greater risk in staying put. You look at verses 3 through 5. They they were nervous there in Bethlehem. The Lord said, take a young cow with you and say that I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Why did he say that? 
was God trying to lie to him and say, look, no, he's not here to anoint a king. He's just, man, he's just coming to worship, coming to sacrifice, coming to teach us a few things. Just the fact that God told him not to disclose what he was up to didn't mean that he was trying to trick the people. God is under no obligation to tell us everything that he's up to. So many times we'll say, God, I'll be obedient in this next step as long as you show me everything that you're doing. God is under no obligation to show us everything that he's doing. He's just telling us, here's the next step that I've called you to take. Well, how's it going to happen? He begins to lay out a strategy. He lays out a plan, but he doesn't tell them everything, nor does he tell the people everything. God is a God of the new. He says, I want you to invite Jesse. This is going to make it easier for you. We're going to narrow it down a little bit. And I'll let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. I'm not telling you his name. I'm not making it as easy as it was with Saul, but I'm going to show him to you. Samuel did what the Lord directed. He went to Bethlehem, and what are the elders saying? Do you come in peace? And he says, in peace. I've come to sacrifice. You can just hear a collective sigh. He didn't come to anoint a king. Well, actually, he did. And again, it's not being deceptive. God's just not disclosing everything, not only for Samuel's safety, but for their safety. I think of the Apostle Paul, the life that he lived. If there was someone in Scripture who stuck their neck out literally again and again and again, even stoned to death in Lystra or left for dead, some believe that that was very literal that he died and others that, that he was just almost dead, that they beat him to death, but stoned in Lystra, but yet he, and young people stoned in the right way in Lystra, well, if there is a right way, but they threw rocks at him. Uh, nowadays, when you say stoned, everybody's thinking, was he from the 60s? Was he stoned? What was he smoking? And, but they left him for dead. And, and so many other times when, when he gives his resumes, look, I went through all of this, beaten with rods, you name it. But I love what he says in Philippians chapter 3. He goes, it's, it's not that I have been made perfect, not that I have arrived, but he says, this one thing that I do, one thing I do, he says, forgetting those things which are behind. I'm closing the door on the past. What was in his past? If you read those earlier verses, there were things that he could brag about, and there were things that he was ashamed of. He had religious successes and zeal and wonderful things that he could talk about and say, listen, back in the good old days, here's what I was able to accomplish. But he had things that he was ashamed of, and he would say, all those things are garbage compared to knowing Jesus Christ. And sometimes the church and the body of Christ, we can get so caught up in not moving forward because there are things in our past we're ashamed of, and we need to understand God has closed the door on that past. When we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. They have been cast into the deepest sea. They're thrown behind God's back. They're moved as far as the east is from the west and we can see that God has closed the door on that past. We need to close the door on that past and move forward. Other times, and when we th- speak of the church corporately, this is more often the case. Other times, we look at past successes. Remember when this we did this? Remember when we did that? That is why there are some programs in the church that just never die, even though they're not working, even though they may be spiritually dead. People continue to do the same old same old, same old methods and programs, and God has moved on, and we won't let it go because of past successes. 
Many times the greatest enemy to future victories in the Christian life are past victories because we work so hard to duplicate everything we've done in the past. Paul said, forgetting those things which are behind, straining toward those things which are ahead, I press on toward the high call of God in Christ Jesus. So he was closing the door on the past and pressing on to what God had in store. In Isaiah 43, God told Israel, I'm telling you one day, I'm going to do a new thing. Don't miss it. Don't miss out on it. Revelation chapter 3 and verse 8 to the church at Philadelphia who received so many commendations, God said to them, I'm going to do a new thing. Actually, he said it this way, I'm placing before you an open door. Closing the door on the past, but I'm placing before you an open door. And I believe he says to you and to me and to your family and to my family and to Trinity Baptist Church this morning, I'm placing before you an open door. God is a God of new things. The mission and the message never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word never changes. But the methods and the applications of those biblical principles are constantly changing as our situation changes, our context changes. And so we need to renew ourselves daily so that we see what God is up to and how his word is applying in the situation we find ourselves in. Don't let past glories become dead ministries in your life. But see what God has in store for you. There's a Dakota Indian, many of the Indian tribes in Dakota had a a proverb, and the proverb was basically this. If the horse is dead, dismount. If the horse is dead, dismount. And so many times in our lives, in our homes, in our churches, we're trying to ride a dead horse and God is saying, that was a wonderful horse. But it's time to try something new. It's time to do something different. Is God closing the door on the area of your past? Paul was telling, I mean, God was telling Samuel, it's time to move on. Secondly, I want you to see God is choosing hearts that are pure. Remember, it's the situations that change, but the biblical principles never change. God is always choosing hearts that are pure. It did seem easier with Saul. God just kind of brought him to Samuel, said, here's the family, here's the name, here's who you're looking for. Now he needed a little more discernment. Look at verse 6. They arrived, Samuel saws Eliab, he said, certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or his stature because I have rejected him. I could imagine Samuel saying, I don't even know him, but man, he looks like he fits the bill. And by the way, he is the oldest. He is the firstborn. He's got to be a natural leader. And boy, he certainly has the look. Certainly has the look, but what does God say? Man does not see what the Lord sees. Sees, man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees what? He sees the heart. He sees what's on the inside. And the way that God is working and what God is seeing and the way he is moving, it reminds us of what Isaiah said in chapter 55, verse 8 and 9. 
God's ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, His thoughts and His ways are above our thoughts and our ways. But not only is He a transcendent God, He's an eminent God and He can see into us like nobody else can see into us. And He could see into these sons of Jesse and He knew which one was chosen to be king. And we're so concerned with outward. We want to look sharp on the outside. Since Sam and a friend here are very familiar with the chapels at uh, Southeastern Seminary, I can use this as an illustration. They'll know what I'm talking about. I remember when I went to Southeastern Seminary, and I was just like a little bit intimidated. I'm like, seminary? I thought it you know, was kind of like a monastery. You know, That was kind of what I was expecting because I, I had done my uh, undergrad at Emmanuel College, and back in those days, and for the Emmanuel students who are here, this might be a shock to you, but back in those days, you couldn't wear shorts to school. You had to wear long pants to class in college. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and when we had chapel, School of Christian Ministries chapel, I saw a young man headed to chapel the other day, and he had on shorts. And, you know, the, even the boys' shorts are getting shorter and shorter these days. You know, the sun's out, thighs out kind of thing. I don't like that, dudes, but, you know, that's just me. Um, but, I mean, he was wearing, you know, a young man T-shirt and, and, and shorts headed to chapel. And I thought, man, when we went to chapel, we had to get our iron and ironing board out that day. And you just ironed the front of your shirt because you knew you were going to wear a jacket. And you had to wear a tie. So we wore coat and tie and slacks to chapel. And so here I am, and I'm thinking, this is, this is undergrad, right? Now I'm going to seminary while everybody's preparing for the ministry. And when I got there, I got really, really sick, food poisoning or something. And, and so the first time, I missed my first class on the first day, and, and uh, a good friend reached out and helped me with bringing my books and, and uh, showing me what was assigned to me and all that. But when I started feeling better, the very first thing I was going to make it to was chapel. And I get out of bed after everybody else has gone to the first class of the day. And, and I'm like, I, I know I'm sick, but I'm not going to miss chapel. I'm, that's the first thing I'm going to make it to. And so I do the thing. I iron my shirt. I put on this time not just a, a, a sport coat and a tie, This time, like I did in college. This time I put on my nicest suit. I had one slick, shiny suit because it's chapel time and I'm in seminary. So I assumed we got to dress up. And I walked over, and I remember getting ready. I walk up to the front of the chapel. Is it Binkley Chapel? Is that the name of it, Sam? I walk in front of the chapel, and there are the dudes. Now, this is the 90s, so they're standing there in their jorts, their their, their jean shorts, and their T-shirts, and they're looking at me like I'm the guest preacher for the day. They're like, and then, and then some friends see me, and they start laughing. They're like, Robbie, what? What'd you wear a suit for, man? I said, because it's chapel, and we're in seminary. I'm put on a suit. That's what we should wear to chapel in seminary. And uh, I, just to put it bluntly, I was way overdressed. They, they thought I was the the speaker that day. Listen, sometimes we get so caught up in outward appearances. There would be churches that it would be a a scandal for me to show up without a tie and preach today. We get so caught up in how people look on the outside. There would be churches today, ladies, if you didn't have a dress on to your ankles, that you wouldn't fit the part. Now, certainly, we should 
strive to give God our best, but what really does that look like? God sees the heart, a heart that is prepared for worship, a heart that is seeking Him, a heart that desires to be in His presence. David, the shepherd boy, didn't look the part. If you go on to read this passage, he saw seven other of Jesse's sons. And after he presented verse 10, these sons, Samuel said, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. This meant that David would be the eighth son that was presented. Seven in Scripture is a number of completion and perfection. Eight is a number of new beginnings. God is doing something new. It's the starting over number. And so, yes, you've seen seven of the cream of the crop, but here's number eight, and he is humble. Yeah, he's a good-looking dude. That didn't rule him out, but it wasn't why God chose him because God was looking on the heart. God was looking at this young man after his own heart who was faithful in his daily responsibilities. And before we decide, okay, I'm ready to go change the world, let's remember that before David killed a giant and saved Israel from the Philistines, he was doing what he was supposed to be doing, young people. He was doing probably what his dad had asked him to do, his chores. He was taking care of the sheep on the backside of the desert to the point that he had already killed a lion and a bear without all the world having to know about it, just doing his job. And Acts 13, 22 tells us after removing Saul that Samuel and God would make David their king. God testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. A man after his own heart who would do everything that God wanted him to do. A humble heart, loving and devoted to God, full of faith. A heart that would know that even when he sinned, he would be broken over that sin. In Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, we see that it would send him into a sensitive time of deep depression because sin had come between him and God. And he would confess that sin, and he would also experience restoration. He would say that, Lord, I, I want you to restore the joy of my salvation and renew that steadfast spirit within me. So he wasn't perfect by any means, But he was sensitive to God, and he knew when he was far from God, and he would seek joyful restoration. He would have a worshipful heart and write many of the psalms that we enjoy worshiping with today. God's looking for people that are not perfect, but that are pure in heart. Their motives are right. They're seeking God, and they come to a place where they say, listen, Lord, if you're ready to do a new thing, here I am. As Isaiah said, here I am. Send me. I want to encounter you, and I want to go forth in your power. And finally, God is consecrating. God is consecrating a new generation for his purposes. Samuel asked him, verse 11, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, he answered, but right now he's tending the sheep, Samuel told Jesse. Send for him. We won't sit down and eat until he gets here. So Jesse sent for him. He had beautiful eyes, healthy, handsome appearance. The Lord said, anoint him, for he is the one. And Samuel took that horn of oil, 
And he began to anoint him in the presence of his brothers. It was a picture there of the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Not only was it a picture of that, it happened very literally, as it tells us right here in the text, the Spirit of the Lord took control, possessed, came on David from that day forward. Then Samuel set out and went to Ramah. He had done what God had called him to do. The anointing was a recognition of God's hand. It was also an invitation of God's Spirit to enable and empower for a specific purpose. Now, here's the wonderful thing about the new covenant that we live in, a covenant that Jeremiah prophesied would come, Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 33, when he talks about God's going to do a new thing. His new thing is that he's going to send the Spirit of God upon the church and the Spirit of God upon the the followers of Christ, but not just upon them like in Old Testament uh, fashion that God would come upon somebody for a specific task. Now the Holy Spirit's going to come to live in side of them. We see that fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. And as we close, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. And as we talk about God consecrating a new generation, I want you to see that every one of us here can be a part of that new generation of what God is doing. In verse 16, he says, this is Peter preaching and explaining what God had done at Pentecost. And it had blown everybody's mind. And you go out to verse 15, he's explaining, these folks aren't drunk, man. This is, this is a God thing that's happening. He says, on the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will, and it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my male and female slaves in those days. And they will prophesy. I will display wonders in heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and remarkable day of the Lord comes. Before that day comes comes. This is not just speaking to the church eschatologically. It's not just about the very last days before Jesus comes, but it's speaking of what will be going on during the church age as well until he comes. Because in verse 21 it says, then whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And Peter had said, that's what you're seeing. He says, this is what's happening right now. So many times we look at the past, and the distant future. We say, man, that's what I used to be. That's what God saved me from. And one day, thank God, I'm going to heaven. But right now, we're on a journey where God wants to do a new thing in my life and in your life. I'm excited about the church equipping the next generation. I pray it will be that generation that touches the world with another great awakening. But what about me? When we use that language around here, some of you ask the same thing. When we say next generation, you know, we want to reach our neighbors. We want to reach the nations and we want to impact the next generation. And you hear that word next generation and you say, what about me? I'm older. Getting older every day, aren't we? 
Well, we can be part of that next generation. How how can we be a part of it? Remember Joshua and Caleb? There was going to be a new generation that went where even Moses didn't go. There was going to be a new generation that went into the promised land and experienced victory like never before. They, They were going to get in on the land where the milk and the honey flowed, right? But Joshua and Caleb got to be part of that generation. Why? Because they had believed God when the other ten on the advisory council, the other ten spies didn't believe God, didn't trust God, didn't have the faith to say, let's move forward. But when, regardless of our age, when we come to a place where we say, God, I want to be a part of that next generation that does something special for you. Then God says, let's go. Let's go. Be a part of it. Be a part of it. Let God consecrate you, set you apart for a new work. And then one day, then one day he will do a new thing because there's got to be a new heaven and a new earth. Revelation 21.5. Behold, I make all things new. But for now, until we arrive, and if you haven't noticed, we're not there yet. We're not in heaven yet. But we're on a journey that offers day after day of brand new days. And some of us are going to get stuck where we are. We're going to be stuck in a rut. We're going to be stuck in the past. And we're going to miss out on those encounters with God like Moses and David had. Some of you are already neglecting that time alone with God in His Word daily missing that daily encounter, missing those new things. And it drives you crazy that others are getting in on it and they're getting excited about it. Be a part of that generation. Be a part of what God's doing. Would you bow your heads with me today?